in our series in 1 Samuel, and I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, before we read, I do want to say, I've, I've sent out an email this week, but I wanted to just praise the Lord uh, verbally in front of you, as it were, uh, for God's faithfulness through your giving. Uh, it was amazing to see uh, how the Lord worked through your giving in the month of March, and I urge you to remain faithful. It matters for God's kingdom. It matters for how we do ministry. It matters primarily for the glory of God and for worshiping Him. That's why we give. That is the fundamental reason why we give. And so I praise the Lord uh, for that faithfulness. Normally in April would be our first, uh, well, it would be a quarterly uh, members meeting where we'd get together and look at all the details of financials and that kind of thing. Uh, all I would really tell you is that in a broad brush manner, uh, it, was, it was a good quarter. And, and March, honestly, contributed to that fact. And uh, we'll go through the details more when we're back together, uh, but, uh, but the elders are looking at those things every time, every, after every month, and we will be until we're back together. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 16. I want to read the entire chapter and then pray as we begin. This is what the Spirit says in His Word. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Then he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you to hear your word to hear how you worked in history to move your plan of redemption forward in a way that is unexpected, in a way we would never guess. Lord, help us to remember even in that that your wisdom is beyond ours, that your ways are not our ways, that your thoughts are not our thoughts, that the way you see people is not the way that we see people. We pray that you will speak through your word to us. I pray that you will empower me by your spirit to speak with clarity and conviction that your truth would be spoken, that your son would be exalted as the only Savior of the world. We pray in his name. Amen. We love stories with unexpected heroes. Harry Potter begins his journey as an orphan living in a closet and ends up saving the world. Frodo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings is a hobbit with a semi-permanent look of concern on his face who ends up saving Middle-earth. Peter Parker is a shy, awkward boy who becomes Spider-Man. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, four children wind up in a fantastical world called Narnia only to find out that they are the subjects of its prophetic hope. They restore order, and they become the kings and queens of Narnia. Characters like these begin their journey looking quite ordinary. Maybe even sometimes they look less than ordinary. But they become extraordinary. 
These kinds of characters are reminders that we can't always trust what we see. So we say things like, don't judge a book by its cover. Looks can be deceiving. All that glitters is not gold. Not all who wander are lost. These phrases from life and from literature remind us that nothing is as it seems. Or as one phrase puts it when translated from the Latin, the beard does not make the philosopher. The idea is that one may look like a philosopher without having the mind of a philosopher or the wisdom of a philosopher. This difference between one's appearance and one's substance is on clear display in the book of 1 Samuel. As you'll recall, Saul is Israel's first king, and he definitely looks the part. He's got family money. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He is definitely the man you want as the face of your company, the face of your ad campaign, the face of your nation. But while he looks like a king and does all he can to maintain that appearance, he's not the king that the people need. And he's not the king that God wants because he isn't committed to pleasing the Lord. So, Saul will be replaced with a man after God's own heart, according to 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. And chapter 16 in 1 Samuel is the story of God identifying and anointing Saul's replacement. And he's an unexpected choice, but he is God's choice. The main idea of this chapter being that God anoints an unexpected boy to be his chosen king. Now, that's very specific to this text. If we were to expand that out to be more general, we would just say that God chooses unexpected people for his glorious purposes. But here in 1 Samuel 16, it's particularly about this unexpected boy being God's chosen king. And the story unfolds with a troubled prophet, a chosen boy, and a dethroned king. So let's look at it first, thinking about this troubled prophet. It's Samuel. At the end of chapter 15, Samuel is troubled. He's grieving Saul's failure as a king. You'll recall that Samuel sins. He disobeys the Lord. But that isn't the full problem because everyone sins. Every king is going to sin. The problem is is that when he's confronted with his sin and when he's given the opportunity, he he refuses to repent. He's okay with his sin. He will explain it. He will justify it. He'll do anything with it but repent of it. And the result, according to chapter 15, verse 26, Samuel says to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. The thing is, Saul is the quintessential Israelite of his day. He is a picture of what the nation was like. Remember, this time in history is transitional. It's from being led by the judges to having a king. And the morality of the judges is summed up in Judges 21-25. Everyone did what was right 
in his own eyes. That's what Saul's been doing. Saul's just been doing what was right in his own eyes. And in so doing, he has rejected God. He's rejected God's Word so that he himself is rejected by God. That's why Samuel is in mourning. And I wonder, I wonder, are we grieved in the same way that Samuel is grieved? Samuel is grieved over the sin that is corrupting his nation. I wonder if we're grieved. I wonder if we're brokenhearted. Certainly, righteous anger is appropriate in so many things. But is our heart broken? When was the last time we were moved, grieved by the sin around us? Samuel is troubled. He's still troubled when chapter 16 begins. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? And we don't know how long it is from chapter 15, verse 35, to chapter 16, verse 1, but in the Lord's mind, it's been long enough. He asks, how long? Now, in the Psalms, how long is a question that men ask of God, wondering when things will change. But here, God asks Samuel, how long? Because it's time for things to change. So God goes on and says, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now that's different than when God sent Samuel to anoint Saul. When he did that in chapter 8, verse 22, he said, uh, Make them a king. And here God says, I will provide for myself. A king. And actually, the word provide is literally the word to see. So, what God is saying is, among Jesse's sons, I see my king. You go get him. That should be really good news to Samuel because he's in grief and there's an opportunity. Things aren't going to fall apart, the, the nation isn't going to go under. But he's still troubled. Look at verse 2. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. I mean, Saul's already shown disregard for God's Word. So when he hears that Samuel's going out to find his replacement, what's to stop him from attacking and killing him? I mean, if, if somebody sent you an email this week with a link to a job opening, and that job opening was the job you currently have and the job you're currently doing, my guess is you would be a little confused, maybe concerned, maybe even angry. Well, that's why Samuel is, con is troubled. Because he's going out with a job opening to fill, and there's somebody already doing that job. So he's frightened, he's troubled, and the Lord gives him the reason to go. The Lord says, take a, take a heifer with you, make a peace offering. Listen, he says, uh, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Notice what happened. Samuel expresses his troubled heart to the Lord, and the Lord responds in mercy. Aren't you thankful that we worship that kind of God? 
not a drill sergeant, but a tender father. God doesn't just command us to do our duty and pray and list out all the things that are troubling for us. No, no, no. His kindness, His mercy invite us and woo us. We take our troubled hearts to Him because He cares for us. The door to His throne of grace is always open. The rivers of His mercy toward us will never run dry. That is the God of Samuel, and that is the God that we serve. God hears him. God responds in mercy, and now God sends him on his way where he finds that Bethlehem is troubled by his arrival. Look at verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Now, why would they ask that? Well, I mean, think about the last thing we saw Samuel doing. He was hacking Agag to pieces because he was a wicked man. That may be on their mind. They may be thinking, is there wickedness in Bethlehem? But even if it's not that, Samuel had said to the whole nation in chapter 12, verse 25, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So they're trembling, but Samuel, the troubled prophet, has not come to make trouble in Bethlehem. He's come to anoint the new king, God's king. And God's king, secondly, is a chosen boy. A chosen boy. Samuel arrives, meets Jesse and his sons, and he knows that somewhere in this bunch, God sees a king. So Samuel starts looking. But his eyes aren't adequate for the search. Look at verse 6. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. I mean, something about Eliab strikes Samuel with a ring of kingly familiarity. He's tall. He's handsome. Look at that stature. Look how broad his shoulders are. He kind of reminds me of Saul. Maybe he's just Saul 2.0. Maybe he's just a better version of Saul. And that makes him conclude, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Right here he is. This must be the Lord's anointed. But the right appearance isn't the right thing to consider. The Lord responds in verse 7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Only God can see the heart. He knows the one who has a heart after him, the one fit to be king. Only God can look past the right-looking exterior and see the heart. Now, when you think about what God has said here, that the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, there are a couple of implications for us. The first one being... We can't see the heart. You and I cannot see what God sees. And because that is true, we must beware of thinking we can see what only God can see. Now, I emphasize that because when it comes to conflict, and this is much of what 
what fills conversations that we call gossip is conjecture about what he was thinking or what she was thinking when they did this. Or, oh, well, they did that, but I know what they were thinking. They were thinking this or that. Friends, we don't even have, we don't have the capacity to do that. We, we can only see the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. We should be in the habit of asking questions. If something looks curious, if something looks off, we should ask questions. We shouldn't make assumptions. Can you imagine how many conflicts in the home and in the workplace and in the church could have been diffused before they ever got going if we had just asked some questions and sought to understand the other person and not make assumptions? The second implication is that God does see the heart. Now, that, these things are both clear. I'm not saying anything that the text isn't saying. Man only looks on the outward appearance. That's the first implication. But God looks on the heart. That's the second implication. He sees our hearts clearly. Nothing muddles His vision. While we may wrongly make guesses about what's in the heart of another person, God needs never guess. He sees it clearly. He reads it as clearly as we read the news feeds on our phones, as we read a newspaper, if you still look at a printed newspaper, as we see black words on a white page. That's how clearly God sees our heart. He has no discernment issues. He has no problem seeing. There is no corner of the heart where there's something hidden that he does not see. And friend, God knows your heart. He knows my heart. Hebrews 4 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So you see, no matter what right appearance you may put on, no matter what right words you may speak, no matter what right deeds you may do, God knows the true you. He sees your heart. You may fool your parents. You may fool your friends. You may fool your co-workers. You may fool other church members. You may fool your pastor. You may fool everyone around you, but you cannot and you will not fool God. Take seriously that God can see your heart. He can see it. He sees what you're hiding from others. And the same God who mercifully responded to Samuel's troubled heart would mercifully respond to your troubles, your sinful heart, your difficulties, your doubts, your struggles, if you would go to him in faith. Well, Samuel is fooled by appearances here. He looks at Eliab and sees one thing, but God looks at Eliab and says, not this one. God looks at Abinadab and says, not this one. God looks at Shammah and says, not this one. And then God looks at the other four. Not this one. Not this one. Not this one. Not this one. Everyone in the lineup gets a not this one. And so in verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? 
I mean, that's a reasonable question, isn't it? God says he sees a king among these sons, and we've looked at all the sons right here in front of me, and there's no king so far. Maybe Jesse forgot someone. I mean, it is easy to do when you have a large family. Maybe someone squirreled away from you. Who knows? Well, and as it turns out, there is one more son to consider. Keep going in verse 11. Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel says, we're not going to sit down to the feast, which would follow this, the, this peace offering. They would sit down and eat together. We're not going to sit down to dinner until I see this last son. David comes in. He's good looking enough, which means that looks neither qualify nor disqualify. But he's the youngest, probably somewhere between 10 and 15 years old. Not only that, the word youngest in the Hebrew can actually be translated smallest. So here's, and God's saying, not this one, 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 this one. This is the one I want. This little boy with bright eyes shining through a dirty face who smells of sheep, this is the one that God wants. I kind of wish we could see Jesse at this point or Samuel, or any of the other sons. I mean, how many jaws are on the ground at this point? How many heads are shaking? How many eyebrows have shot up in surprise? But it's this one. Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This ceremony of anointing. In it, God is committing himself, obligating himself to David to strengthen him to lead so that David will be part of God's great purposes. David is this one. And Saul, the sitting king, is clearly not this one. He's a dethroned king. That's our third heading. I mean, sure, he'll be king for several more years, but he is as good as dethroned. Just read, let's read verses 13 and 14 together. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. This is the hinge that swings the book in a whole new direction. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And then the text says, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, Notice, it is not described as the Spirit of the Lord tormenting. It is a Spirit from the Lord. 
And the idea of God ordaining suffering isn't unique here. Job, you remember, asked the question in Job 2.10, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Or consider what God says in Isaiah 45, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So that is generally true. This particular suffering, this particular torment is tied directly to the departure of God's Spirit. You see, God had, God's Spirit had rushed on Saul initially. You remember that? He had received the Spirit so that he could function as a king, but he was to function as a particular kind of king, one that honors the Lord, one that obeys God's Word. But God has now grieved the Spirit, and He's rejected the Lord, and so God rejects Saul. And that's what this exchange of spirits is a picture of, the rejection of Saul. The Spirit of the Lord departs. The Spirit that empowers, the Spirit that helps, the Spirit that gives wisdom departs, and a harmful Spirit from the Lord comes, and He is tormented. And from here, over the next several chapters, Saul does a tailspin into darkness and madness. He he becomes paranoid, thinking everyone's out to get him even when the evidence says otherwise. He displays behavior that we might label as bipolar. He expresses love for David, even in this text, making him his armor bearer, saying, he has found favor in my eyes, and not so long from now, Saul will be hurling a spear over the dinner table, trying to pin him to the wall and kill him. And it all traces back to this moment to the departure of the Spirit of God and the arrival of a harmful spirit from God because of Saul's sin, because of his refusal to repent. I wonder what some people would tell Saul today when they see all this behavior. I wonder what would be more likely to be opened in order to help Saul. I wonder if people would first reach for their Bible to help Saul or if they would first reach for a prescription pad to help Saul. I wonder if someone might suggest some other kind of therapy to help Saul. Because what what Saul needs, you see, many people would say, is relief. If we can just get him some relief, that is good. I mean, hopefully everything will work out, but this man is in trouble. He is being tormented, and he needs relief. Well, actually, that's precisely what his servants say. His servants recognize what's going on, and they have a suggestion. I'm going to read the rest of the text again, beginning in verse 15, because it all goes together. Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. 
Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me, Jess, send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent him by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now, it doesn't depart from him permanently because he keeps being tormented, and this comes back over and over again. But Saul's servants essentially suggest that Saul, what Saul really needs is music therapy. They need to hire a musician, add him to the palace payroll, and when the torment comes on, they'll call in the music therapist, he'll play, and all will be well. Now, truth be told, music is powerful. It communicates, it can communicate what's stirring in the human heart, and it also communicates to the human heart. Music uh, so it often expresses mood, doesn't it? I mean, we associate certain kinds of music with, with weddings and with funerals and with graduations and with birthday parties and with falling in love and with breaking up. And even without lyrics, music can express joy or sorrow, weighty ideas or lighthearted fun. And none of this is surprising because God is the creator of music. And He created it as an expressive vehicle for us, most especially for us to express our knowledge and experience of Him in praise and in faith. But it ends up, we use it to express all kinds of things in the human experience. And also, music can affect mood. I mean, it prompts happiness, sadness. Don't, can't you hear a song and it brings back good memories or bad memories? When you, even when you're sitting at a funeral, there are some songs that just play and nothing happens with the family that's sitting there. But then there's another song that plays, a song that's particularly poignant, particularly, po you know, the, 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 the deceased's favorite song or a song that sums up their friendship, their relationship, their whatever, and that's where the tears begin to flow because music can do that. Music helps us focus Lots of people study with music on. I was listening to Oscar Peterson while I was studying for this sermon. So the truth is, I mean, natural activity can bring a kind of relief, whether it's exercise, bird watching, going for a walk, painting, doing other activities, even listening to music. That's not actually in question. The question is, is relief what Saul actually needs? That's the fundamental question. Think about that. The servants recognize that the torment that Saul is experiencing is from the Lord. They don't say, oh, he just seems generally bothered. Let's play some music. They say a spirit from the Lord is tormenting, tormenting you. They see it's a spiritual problem. Saul didn't tell them it's a spiritual problem. They observed what was happening, and they put two and two together. Their worldview told them that this kind of torment was something that was from the Lord. And their suggestion is to find relief, not to seek redemption, not for Saul to repent. 
When Matthew Henry commented on this uh, verse, he said, how much better friends, how much better friends they had been to him if they had advised him, since the evil spirit was from the Lord, to make his peace with God by true repentance, to send for Samuel to pray with him and intercede with God for him. Then he might not only have some present relief, but the good spirit would have returned. Friends, to see spiritual problems and to settle for natural, even man-made solutions, to (coughs) divorce God from the problems of the human soul and of the human psyche is a perennial problem throughout history because too often we value relief over redemption. We value relief certainly over repentance. And Saul is not going to repent. He doesn't want redemption. And those who are counseling know that. He doesn't want to repent. He didn't repent before. You remember that? He didn't repent before. What makes you think he's going to repent now? Well, if he's not going to repent, the least we can do is give him some relief. Well, friends, that is simply, it's just not good enough. Oh, but he won't listen. Dear friends, Isaiah was told that he was to preach the truth while ears were closing and eyes were going blind and hearts were hardening. He was basically told, nobody's going to listen, but you keep saying what's true. He wants relief and not redemption. And in God's providence and in quite an ironic twist, Saul will get some relief at the hand of his replacement. Look at verse 18. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Saul's servant recites David's resume, and apart from the whole musical talent bit, it reads like a king's resume. He's a man of valor, a man of war. He's prudent speech. He's good in presence. The Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. That's the point. The Lord is with David. The Spirit of God has rushed upon David, and the Lord is no longer with Saul. The Spirit of the Lord has departed from him. Saul is as good as dethroned because God has chosen an unexpected boy to be his king. That's what's going on here. And the anointing of David is a momentous step forward in God's plan of redemption, a path that will eventually take us to the chosen one, capital C, capital O. You see, David is a Messiah, an anointed one, but David's descendant, Jesus, is the Messiah, and he was just as unexpected. The people in Jesus' day expected the Messiah to be a great warrior, a Saul-like figure, if you will. He would be impressive, but they didn't, they didn't expect the Jesus that they got. He wasn't much to look at. I mean, as Isaiah 53 puts it this way, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was born in the backwater town of Bethlehem, and he grew up in a no-good town of Nazareth. The people from his hometown didn't expect much from him. The Pharisees and the scribes dismissed him, not expecting any holy man to actually socialize with social outcasts. Even his disciples had different expectations. When Jesus says 
that he must die and rise again. Not only are they confused, but Peter rebukes him. What John writes is true. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Everyone looked at Jesus and said, not this one. But God says, this one. God anoints the unexpected Jesus to be his chosen king. The Spirit rushes on Jesus at his baptism, and the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And though it was unexpected to For this to happen to a Savior and to a King sent by God, Jesus dies. And He is risen from the dead on the third day to save His people, to save all who would repent and believe in Him, who would stop looking at Jesus and saying, not this one, and instead say, this one, this is my beloved Savior. Friend, God chooses unexpected people for His great purposes. Even as He chose unexpected David to be king, most powerfully as He sent unexpected, an unexpected Savior in Jesus. But there's more. Who'd expect a stuttering Moses to speak for God? Who would expect a frightened Gideon to lead God's army? Who would expect sexually immoral Rahab to help God's holy people? Who would expect Israel, the fewest of the peoples on earth, to be God's folk, the focus of God's work in the world? Who would expect fishermen and tax collectors and persecutors of the church to be apostles? Look, none of us were wise, none of us were worthy, none of us were anything, but 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God is in the habit of choosing the unexpected. God chooses unexpected people for His glorious purposes. Friend, you may feel like you are the last person on earth that God would ever choose. You are the last person on earth that God would ever love. You are the last person on earth that God would ever save. But friend, the least likely people on earth are the most likely candidates for God's grace. If you will turn to Him, He will save you. He will not refuse you. Take your heart troubled by sin to Him and find forgiveness. Find new life. And one day you will find heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You speak through it. We thank you that you worked in such a way as to choose the unexpected for your glorious purposes. 
We thank you for the plan of redemption that moves forward in this chapter that we've studied, the plan that takes us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that your pattern throughout your scripture is to choose the unexpected for your glorious reasons and your glorious purposes. Father, I pray that you will help us. Help us to not boast in what we feel to be most likely and most expected and most obvious, but help us to glory in the fact that though we are the least likely people on earth to be loved by you, to be saved by you, that that in itself made us the most likely candidates for your grace. Thank you for your grace. I pray that those who are watching and listening who don't know you will turn to you in faith. That, that, that they would see that no matter what they might expect out of you, what they can expect if they turn to you in faith is open arms and mercy. Thank you for your mercy. Keep us steady in these unsteady days. Keep us faithful as we reflect on your faithfulness. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this day, this week, in the days to come and forevermore. Amen.